You're listening to a special edition of The Central Cast, a place to connect with and listen in on conversations with prominent and respected thinkers, artists, and culture shapers. It's here we dig beneath the surface as we explore philosophy, arts, comedy, theology, and philanthropy within the framework of progressive faith. If you'd like to contribute to the production and expansion of this podcast, or if you'd like more information about the community which creates it, visit www.centralavenuechurch.org. Hey, everybody. I'm with Amber Cantorna today to talk about her new book, Unashamed, a coming out guide for LGBTQ Christians. Amber has spoken at Central before and will speak again on Saturday, April 6th, when she holds a workshop based on her new book, this is a ticket event for those of you who are interested, and um, you can purchase them via Eventbrite. Just search her name, Amber Cantorna. She will also speak the next morning at our regular 10 a.m. Sunday service. Uh, that's that's free. Where <laughs> <laughs> she and I will have a discussion about her book and work. So I'll be moderating that, but ideally she'll do most of the talking. Welcome back, Amber. Hello. Thank you for having me. Our pleasure. Now, some listening might not know who you are. Why don't you give us a brief retelling of your story? Sure. Uh, So I was raised in a very conservative Christian family, and my dad has worked at Focus on the Family for over 30 years. So I grew up in Colorado Springs, very much uh, contained in a Christian bubble. And uh, I was very heavily involved in the purity culture, and so I was kind of masked from being able to identify my sexual orientation earlier on in life because of that. And when I entered my early 20s, I realized that I was gay. And it was quite the journey to be able to reconcile my sexuality with my faith. And then several years later, come out. And that was a very um, devastating thing for my family and our relationships. And I have since lost all contact with my family. Um, But I have Uh, met my wife and we've been married for almost five years and um, I do a lot of work now helping other people reconcile their faith with their sexuality and navigate the coming out process from conservative faith backgrounds. Wow you you got that story down pat I mean that was (laughs) succinct my friend. (laughs) Awesome so in your book you begin by talking about internalized homophobia and the self-hate that often gets programmed into Christian LGBTQ folks. I think it's it's great that you opened with this matter because I think it's foundational to everything else you discuss later on, like practicing self-care, setting boundaries with non-affirming family and friends, knowing how and when to come out and who to come out to, et cetera, et cetera. Could you talk more about how internalized homophobia works Uh, how it becomes a voice in people's head that unfortunately often never goes away. Yeah, it was a little bit intimidating to start the book with this chapter because it is such a big topic. Uh, And yet I really felt like I couldn't start anywhere else. Like you kind of have to start there and recognize the own programming that has been dialed into your DNA from the time you were very young before you can really reconcile that and be able to accept yourself 
And until you accept yourself, you really can't move forward towards towards coming out in a healthy way, at least. And so I really wanted to dial in on that and talk about um, the ways that really when we from the time that we're born, unless you're adopted, you you tend to see your family reflected in uh, in your immediate family. You see yourself reflected in, mm. in the color of your skin and your facial features and some of those things. And so um, and so you feel this sense of belonging. And yet when we as LGBT people are born, uh, we most often um, don't see that in our immediate family. It's pretty rare for that to be reflected in our immediate family. Um, it may in some cases be reflected in relatives, but again, that's not very common. And so very often you feel isolated from the very beginning uh, and, and kind of like you don't belong in your own family. And so that inevitably then produces some seeds of shame that continue to grow over time if you don't recognize that. And often we don't because um, we're not given the tools or the, um, the really the knowledge or vocabulary to identify those things. And so that just continues to grow in us. And as we hear um, either negative comments about the LGBT community or jokes or um, derogatory things from our family, that continues to kind of implant into us. We absorb that, um, whether we recognize it or not, because we haven't been able to to really name homophobia, um, let alone internalized homophobia. Right. And so it's really important for us to be able to recognize how that has directly impacted our own lives and be able to uh, name it for what it is and like um, and kind of tear that fear apart and, and see the truth beneath it to be able to really accept ourselves, um, kind of separate the lies from the truth and, and be able to see your value um, as, a, as a human being, as um, a child of God, and be able to recognize that your diversity is, is special and is meaningful and is important um, and is equally as valued as anybody else's. Yeah, that's really good. I, I see this analogous to the way conservative and fundamentalist uh, religious communities gaslight or, or program everyone, not mm -hmm. just LGBTQ folks, mm -hmm. into internalizing guilt and shame, right? Absolutely. Often, many times after someone leaves the church, no longer identifies as a Christian and maybe even no longer believes in God, they can still struggle with feeling like, you know, they're sinning or are in danger of hellfire. Right? Yes, I, absolutely. I say that to point out that the that the internalized homophobia among LGBTQ folks is really similar to the internalized guilt and shame um, that are common to anybody. I mean, yes. anyone who grew up in these oppressive religious environments. I, I personally still struggle with feelings of self-doubt and guilt, wondering sometimes, I mean, not seriously, but I think I, I still catch myself feeling a little bit of fear and trepidation that maybe I'm I'm hellbound. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. no or you're the one that's gone astray and yeah, yeah. everybody else that, is that, right. Because I no longer believe what I used to about a bunch of things. Right. And it's really diabolical stuff that you're never completely rid of. It mm -hmm. is a part of your hardwiring up top. Absolutely. Right? Yes. Um, and, and I think that, again, it's not just members of the Christian LGBTQ community that suffer from a lot of that internalized guilt and shame it's it's really a lot of us and um it's just this human human quotient this human factor in, involved um anyone who kind of dares to think outside the box yeah precisely i think we're all left scarred by by a lot of that oppression i can't help but think that that those lgbtq christians who advocate 
for celibacy and believe that celibacy is not just God's will for them, but God's will for all LGBTQ Christians, maybe a, what you would call a strong side B position. Mm-hmm. I, I can't help but think that this comes this comes from internalized homophobia. Do you do you see it that way, Amber? I do uh, for a lot of people. I don't think that is necessarily the case for everyone. I I think there are, um, you know, I think I believe that celibacy is a calling. So um, what it's nothing to do with your gay or straight. Exactly. Nothing to do with the fact of whether you're gay or straight. I think it's a calling. And yet. um, So I think there's very few people that are actually called to that. I think if they are feeling like this is something that is forced upon them, um, that that it's not a choice or a calling, but something that is expected of them in order to be made acceptable to God or to others, then that is where that shame is rooted in. And I do think a lot of people deal with that internalized homophobia and re- resort to what we would call a side B position out of that. Mm. Um, and I think if that is your basis or reasoning, then that is wrong. Um, yeah, for, the, for those of you who don't know, I imagine a lot of you do, side A Side B became uh, terms in the Christian LGBTQ movement, basically from the GCN or now QCF, uh, you know, Gay Christian Network, uh, Q Christian Fellowship Movement. Side A means totally affirming. Side B means essentially celibacy, right? Correct. Yeah. So for those of you kind of wondering about the shorthand here, side B is this kind of uh, celibacy position. Now, Amber, you discuss in your book what it looks like to know if someone is ready to come out. What would you say are the most important questions someone needs to ask themselves before coming out? Well, I try to take a very holistic approach because there's different areas that you really need to consider before coming out. Um, and, And not everybody has the luxury of doing all this prep work ahead of time. But for those who do, I think it's very helpful to evaluate um, things like, are you emotionally ready? Uh, Have you done some therapy with a licensed therapist that can help you work through the emotions behind, um, you know, reconciling your faith with your sexuality and accepting yourself and and, um, preparing for whatever fallout may come if you decide to come out? So I think that emotionally preparation is very uh, important. I think that uh, theological preparation is very important for you to do that own work of being able to look at the Bible and see what it really says on these issues and be able to um, understand the historical context in which things are written. So you also want to be theologically ready. You want yeah. to to know for yourself. And that doesn't mean that you have to defend your theology to others. In fact, I often recommend that you don't. Um, you should always have to defend your existence to others. Um, You can point them in the right direction, you can give them the resources, but I don't often encourage people to enter a theological debate. Um, I've heard you, I really like that you say that. I've heard, you're one of the rare, I think, um, if you want to call yourself an activist, or people on the Christian LGBTQ circuit, whatever, you're one of the rare ones that really talk about not getting yourself wrapped up in theological debates with non-affirming Christians. And I really think that's helpful because it's like just banging your head against a brick wall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, and it really it, doesn't produce anything positive. No, and it re, it can it can re-traumatize, right? It can just Absolutely. deepen the hurt. And it's yeah. sort of like you need to take care of yourself now. You need to not worry about fixing them. Right, right. Yeah. And and there are those few people that I think are called to that kind of like celibacy. There are a few people that are actually truly called to that. The Kathy majority Baldock, of us are not, you know, Kathy Baldock, cough, Kathy Baldock. Yeah. But she's straight. 
Yeah, and exactly. so that's different. Yeah. Um, I would say somebody like Matthew Vines would be yeah. one. Um, you know, but there, those people are few and far between that actually um, are well versed enough and have the emotional backbone to to engage in those conversations yeah. without it completely um, re-traumatizing or draining them. Um, but I, I just tell people that it rarely produces something positive. If somebody really wants to know and really wants to learn, they will take the time to read a book. And um, it's not your job to to educate them around all that. You know, and something, so, something um, that really, I think, um, helped me understand how to how to deal with that situation is, and, and, it, and it applies not just to um, matters of LGBTQ affirmation, but basically any theological matter. People tend not to change their mind on anything until they desire to do so. In other absolutely. words, nothing trumps desire. If somebody mm-hmm. doesn't desire to change their, their fundamental beliefs about the nature of reality or the nature of God, it's just no matter what, you, you can have all the facts, all the science mm-hmm. in the world, mm-hmm. you can, you can you know, talk about how they're literally killing people with what they're saying and believing, mm-hmm. how they're literally destroying lives with what they say and believe. Mm-hmm. If, if somebody does not desire to change their point of view, it doesn't matter what you say. Yep. Desire trumps everything. Yep, absolutely. And so what I encourage people to do instead is tell them your story. Right. Because I find that stories impact and change people more than anything else. Yeah. They can hear your story and how it has personally affected you. Then that may hit some heartstrings for them to consider their beliefs a little differently. Totally. Because does stories really get underneath the radar too, right? It kind of mm-hmm. circumvents uh, the, the sort of the, the rational mind, so to speak, or, you know, the arguments about theology and gets down to the human, the, the, the human aspect, right? It gets Absolutely. people, it, it activates people's empathy, I think. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, yeah, that's really important. And um, I've seen that firsthand. So. Yes, yes. Uh, you talk about setting boundaries in your book and how important that is. What, <laughs> What is it like for you to set boundaries with your family? I think people are really interested in, in your personal story and experience with setting boundaries. <laughs> well, um, boundaries are really hard, I think, for anybody. Nobody likes to have to set boundaries. Right. Um, but I think we're also innately taught that boundaries are bad um, rather than the fact that they're good and they're healthy and normal. And so... Um, Boundaries for me have been different than for a lot of people because I no longer have contact with my family. Um, And so those boundaries, I guess, are pretty firm. Um, But that wasn't something that I set. They actually, you know, they're the ones that cut ties with me. Um, Yet in those early months before that happened, um, there was some boundary setting that I had to do. And it was very hard. Um, I eventually ended up getting, you know, I guess the one example that I use in the book is that my dad would say, um, you know, Amber, you're always welcome to come home for the holidays, but Clara, my wife, would never be welcome under our roof. Oh. And so then I had to say, well, then I'm not coming. You know, like that was a boundary that I had to set and say, if she's not welcome, I'm not welcome. Right. Um, you wouldn't go somewhere for the holidays where mom isn't welcome right. and leave her by yourself. Um, you can't expect me to do the same thing. It's right. it's the same thing. She's my wife. And I would never leave her alone for the holidays to come spend time with you. That's just not okay. Um, I I believe that once you get married, that is your primary family. And that's who you need to defend over your birth family. And um, that you need to create that safe haven around your relationship. 
And so that was a boundary that I set. Um, you know, over time, I ended up setting other boundaries. We kind of, um, things became pretty toxic. And so it got to where I only felt safe communicating over email instead of in person, because that gave me the chance to think through what I wanted to say and not react in anger or hurt and to be able to kind of process. So that was kind of a boundary that I ended up setting. Uh, Eventually, I ended up having to take them all off of social media, which was a really hard boundary for me because it felt like kind of the last link that I had in the last window into their life. And so I really struggled with that for a long time because I knew once that was cut, that was it. I wouldn't have that back, you know. Um, But it was also very detrimental to me to be able to see their posts and see all the things I was being left out of. And, you know, the the family reunions that I wasn't invited to and the birthday parties and the weddings and, you know, those things that I wasn't being included in. And so it was doing more harm than good. And uh, it was really hard for me to get to that point, but I eventually had to take them all off social media just for my own, you know, mental health and sanity. What got you through that? Um, I think the support of, you know, she was my fiance at the time, but the support of my wife was really big. She gave me a lot of space to do whatever I needed to do. She didn't um, make demands or expectations of me. She let uh, me do what I needed to do in the process and just, uh, you know, supported me and encouraged me along the way. And that was huge. Um, I, I think the support of an affirming community at my church was also very key in having those people that I could rely on at the time yeah. and uh, know that I was accepted and loved there for all of who I was. And I didn't have to kind of decompartmentalize myself and, and separate myself into pieces. And I think that also gave me, knowing that I did have that safe place, also gave me the courage to do what I needed to do um, to, to keep myself safe. You had a, you, it sounds like you had a significant amount of personal support from your church community and your, well, your relationship, Clara. I did, yeah. At that time, I was really pretty plugged into my church, yeah. and that was um, really, and I was, you know, I was involved in a couple other things as well, um, but, but the church community that I had was really pretty instrumental in my support during those early coming out years. And, and, and that was fully affirming church. It was a fully affirming church. What? Let me ask you this: What would you, what would you tell someone um, who's currently in a non-affirming church, um, but is it's it's a pretty welcoming church community for them? They feel loved. They feel included, even though they know that maybe the senior leadership wouldn't do their wedding uh, or let them occupy maybe a pastoral role, but they're they're really loved and included and told that you're part of the family of God. I guess what I'm asking you is what do you what do you tell LGBTQ Christians who are not in fully affirming churches but feel loved and included in those churches and like that's the place for them right now? Do you still tell them get out? You need to find a fully affirming community? doing damage to themselves in the long run by continuing to stay in a place that doesn't fully affirm them. Um, because really underneath it all, um, yes, you can be loved, but if you're not fully affirmed, you're still kind of, um, you're not equal. You're subhuman, yeah. you know, you're, you're not equal in their eyes. And so you don't have the same um, rights and privileges as everybody else would in the church to, to lead and to serve in those ways. Totally. And I think in the long term, that does more harm than good. I mean, I struggle with this as as a pat. I'm for those of you who don't know, I'm the pastor of Central Avenue Church, and Central Avenue is a fully affirming, fully side A church. I do same sex weddings. Uh, we have uh, you know a member of our board of directors who's out and gay and in a same sex relationship. Like, there's no weird glass ceiling or, or weird policies at Central, but 
I'm I'm also part of this um, this this community called QCF and and I, I encounter a lot of gay Christians that are in non-affirming situations, non, non-affirming churches that don't want to leave their church because they mm-hmm. feel they love there. And it's like, mm-hmm. they're like, Aaron, this is like the only place I've ever really felt like accepted and I'm not ready to leave that yet. Yeah. And of yeah. course now as a straight man, um, I am kind of not in a position where I can tell them, you need to just get out. I understand you feel loved and included and it's the only place you've ever felt loved and included, but you need to get out now. I feel like that would be a little insensitive of me and perhaps mm-hmm. I wouldn't be able to speak authoritatively like that, like you might might be able to, because obviously I'm I'm straight, but I'm also a pastor. And I think there can be sort of like a power differential there where it's sort of like when you're the pastor of an affirming church and you're telling gay Christians to get out of their non-affirming churches, it can look a little self-serving, like you might have a vested interest. In <laughs> I don't know, Amber, I'm just saying to you and my audience here that I struggle with this one because for me, the most important thing is the health of, of the individual. And I firmly believe that all churches, if they're not fully affirming, need to change or cease to exist, period, end of story. They need to change or they need to cease to exist. Now, my change and my evolution from being a conservative, non-affirming Christian was an evolution. It took time. I I needed to change, um, but it took time. And, And churches take time to change. And so I'm kind of like, I see this bifurcation and kind of the progressive Christian movement where a lot of people are saying, you know, I'm going to use strong language, fuck the church that isn't fully affirming, burn them down. And mm-hmm. I'm kind of like, okay, I understand that I I have the same kind of anger, but I'm also not like telling people, I guess, to get out of their non-affirming church right now. But I also am someone who says non-affirming churches need to cease to exist or change, but there has to be a kind of allowance for some kind of evolution i feel like mm-hmm. um did you do you agree with that how do you how do yeah, you yeah you know i think the thing is for them to leave and and i can speak to this from personal experience for them to leave that church um it may be the only church home they've ever had maybe they've grown That's up in that point. church and so it feels like a loss it is a loss um yeah. you know i was in my home church for 14 years and to leave that was a huge loss to me and so they have to do it in their own time and yet I still encourage them to do it because they don't, when you're at that point in your journey, you can't see um, how far in advance that is going to affect you by staying in that place. And so I still encourage them to do it, even though it is a loss because um, they don't realize how much harm they're doing to themselves by staying there. It's almost like we need to tell them you need an exit strategy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's not like leave tomorrow, but you need, you need need to kind of this, you need, I don't know. It's so difficult, but you kind of have to tell them you need an exit strategy. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. the damage it's doing is, um, I, I mean, anything from just solidifying internalized homophobia all the way to people taking their lives because they yeah. believe that God hates them so much that he's right. going to damn them to hell forever, you know? And so it, it is doing great harm um, on yeah. any level, whether it they're welcoming, you know, or not. Um, it is doing great harm. What do you what do you tell um, affirming straight folks in non-affirming churches? Do you also tell them you need an exit strategy? Strategy. That's a sticky one. Um, I think, yeah, because the problem is um, people can stay there and try and help them change, um, but if there's no movement they too need to get out because yeah. by staying there they're perpetuating the very thing that is killing their friends. 
Yep. Either spiritually yeah. or physically. And people, so people are dying. People are, people literally, are literally dying over this. Yes. And so to stay and support a church that is contributing to that yeah. is doing great detriment. It's so and messy. And it and, is so messy. And and it's like you can't just each church is kind of individualistic, right? But you we have to put the needs of this suffering, brutalized community above the needs of these non-affirming you know, sensitive, conservative churches that, you know, in other words, the sensitive meaning they're, they're very sensitive to, you know, everybody else's needs, but those who need it, who need the help most, I the guess. Most. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. You know, I think, I think we need to put the needs of those who are being brutalized above the needs of these churches. You're absolutely right. But again, that those, those are, those are difficult waters to negotiate. Yeah. And, they're very nuanced. But it goes back to saying, you know, like what you said, if it needs to either change or cease to exist. So if you're involved in that change and they are making steps towards change, that's different than if they're not. If they're not making change, then the only way they're going to cease to exist is by people stopping, stop going to their churches. And that's how it's going to cease to exist. It's not going to cease to exist if people are still supporting them. Yeah, there's this. you know, movement, I think, today among churches that are not affirming where they, before they become affirming, they go third way. Are you familiar mm-hmm, with what third way? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, so for those of you who don't know, third way is kind of like it's where a church goes from being non-affirming to a position of conversation and dialogue where or they change their policies. There's a church in L.A. here. I, I won't mention, you know, who they are. Um, it's a pretty significant church that has recently called uh, re- recently gone third way. And what that means is their that their internal policies have changed, whereby you can occupy any position of leadership in the church and be LGBTQ and be out and in a same sex relationship. But no pastor in the church can officiate a same sex wedding. So that was the deal they struck with the conservative members where, again, you can occupy any position of leadership and be in a same-sex marriage or in a same-sex relationship, but no pastor in the church can, can officiate a same-sex wedding. Um, and then they will allow small groups to exist that are fully affirming small groups, I guess, or something like that. I don't know. It's, it's such a wishy-washy area. Um, yeah. And, and um, I don't know, that, that tends to be the way that churches are transitioning today. I, I tell pastors, and I told the pastor of this church that's gone third way, that third way is not a destination. It's it's a tr- point of transition. It's it's a place of transition. The goal is eventually to become fully affirming, and third way can perhaps help in that evolution, but it's definitely not a stopping point. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to speak to that at all? No, I agree. I, I agree that it often is a transition point for a lot of churches, but staying there is not good enough. No. Because um, there's still a subliminal message that's being sent that says you're not equal in our eyes. Exactly. And so I think it's, um, you're like two thirds of a Christian. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You're still not quite good enough. Two thirds of a person, you Mm -hmm. know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's troubling. And, you know, I feel like we want to be patient with those communities and those people while also telling them grow up, like Mm -hmm. it's okay to, you know, go through a, you know, growth spurts or a time of evolution, but there has to be a goal here. And the goal is maturity and fully becoming fully affirming and stop the internalizing of homophobia and the killing. Honestly, the, 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 the brutalization. Yeah, that's hard uh, to communicate. Um, All right. So let me ask you this. Why do you think parents often choose their religion? This is a tough question. Why do you think parents often choose their religion over their LGBTQ Christians? I'm um, children, sorry. 
Let me I think. Did you yeah, get that question? I, I wanna... did. Do you want to repeat it for the? Yeah, yeah, because I kind of flubbed it. Why do you think parents often choose their religion over their LGBTQ ch uh, children? I think they honestly believe that that's what God demands of them. Right. When I think about my parents, um, I think they honestly believe that that's what God requires of them deep down in their heart. And so while that doesn't excuse their behavior or the way that they've treated me, it does give me a certain amount of empathy because in some ways they are victims of bad theology themselves. Yeah. And that is what is playing the tape that is playing in their head is that they have no other option but to remain faithful to God in this way. Um, and, and it is so unfortunate that anybody would ever have to, um, to think that they have to choose between God and their child. You know, um, I, I told my therapist recently about, you know, my parents saying, well, we will choose God over you. We love God more than you, you know, if given the choice, we choose God. And she just thought that was the most horrendous thing any parent could ever say to their child. Yeah. And it is, you know, like it is horrible. And yet the unfortunate thing is that it's not uncommon. It's not. Um, I'm not the only one that's heard that. There are many LGBT kids that have heard that from their parents. And so the fact that people even think that that's the ultimatum they have is what is so tragic. You know, it's kind of like what is written, I think, in um, First John or Second John, where he says, um, you know, anybody who says they love God who they can't see and yet doesn't mm -hmm. love their brother or sister who they can see is, mm -hmm. is a liar, right? Mm -hmm. There is no way of, of loving this invisible, silent deity on high and, yeah, uh, and, and not loving the one you can see. Yeah. This, this person who actually exists in the world, mm -hmm. you know, in front of you. Um, and, and, you know, for me, Amber, you know, the enti this entire conversation um, and, and um, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, th th this entire um, issue of LGBTQ Christian inclusion in the church, and really comes down to, I think, the need for the church to change in its entire approach to Christianity and, and mm -hmm. the way that it prioritizes kind of supernaturalism and prioritizes, um, you know, theology above people in general mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. a lot of issues, not just LGBTQ issues, but race yep. issues and, yep. and, and, spe and specifically even how we look at and treat other religions. Mm -hmm. You know, when Absolutely. basically we put this kind of, you know, uh, kind of rigid sort of conservatism or this or this belief in a supreme being on high above our love and care for our fellow human beings. There's mm -hmm. something deeply, deeply wrong with that. Yes. Um, there, there's something pathological. I want to say it like this. There's something pathological about the nature of religion that it, it functions like a coping mechanism in the sense that it allows us to cover up our deep-seated fears about death, our deep-seated fears about unknowing, our, our deep-seated fears about suffering and and kind of the meaninglessness of life and the, the feeling that there's this deep, empty void in each of us. Religion often functions as a way, and our beliefs in God function as a way of covering all that up. And, and when something comes along, like, for example, uh, LGBTQ Christians that seemingly, you know, disrupt our view of God or disrupt our understanding of Scripture on such a foundational level that it challenges or it, it, it basically destabilizes our religion and theology's ability to help us cover up essentially our fear of death and our and our fear of unknowing and our fear mm -hmm, of mm -hmm. suffering. 
Does that make sense? So it yeah, kind of, because like, they're they're living in a place that's very safe, that's very comfortable for them, and right. to challenge any of those beliefs feels like it rocks the very foundation and makes them very uncomfortable, and they don't know what to do with that because they they have such a foundation in fear, whether they realize it or not. I believe yeah. my parents have so much fear wrapped up around it that they can't even, you know, begin to deconstruct anything around this issue because they're right. so afraid of of God and they're so afraid of hell and they're so afraid of what other people will think and of their reputation. And there's just so much fear wrapped up into it that they so, just don't even know what to do. So the LGBTQ issue is really ancillary to the to the deeper concern that they have that you represent um, a, a radical shift in the way they have to understand God and read scripture. Mm-hmm. You Absolutely. represent a radical shift and a challenge to the coping mechanism they have in place that, that, mm-hmm. that gives them a sense of mastery, a sense of superiority, a sense of knowing, a sense of control oh, over life yep. and death and reality. Yep. That is ultimately what's being challenged by you. So, and, and, and for those of you listening in the audience, I think it's so important to understand the deeper psychological reasons behind the resistance among the the conservative and fundamentalist elements within evangelicalism today towards you is you are you are fundamentally threatening their coping mechanism mm-hmm. and and their and for me, yeah and, and and so what I'm saying is I think there's a deeper need in the church today for a, a change in the pathology of religion a change in the way that we approach our faith where it's, where we have to let go of um, frankly, we have to let go of certainty. We have to mm-hmm. let go of the coping mechanism mm-hmm. and learn to embrace suffering, learn to embrace unknowing, learn to embrace um, the, the facts of, of death, that we don't know what waits for us, that we don't know um, anything really about this invisible deity on high, and that we we have to, I think, embrace a kind of more open and radical faith in order to, um, I think, really be more human to each other, really love and include each other, really care for each other on a human level. Otherwise, I think faith ultimately, ironically, gets in the way of love, gets in the way mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. justice. Does that, does that make sense? Absolutely, yeah. Faith, it becomes a barrier rather than a tool that can be used to love our neighbor. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know, That's that's been a big part of my journey that I, I really think that what allowed me to become affirming as a Christian and, and specifically as a pastor was my greater deconstruction, <laughs> that my, mm-hmm. my greater mm-hmm. move out of what you might call fundamentalism or conservative Christianity and into a more progressive faith where... You know, I I no longer think of God as this, you know, I guess this supreme being on high, but more as this um, this this more of this energy or life force <laughs> that that dwells within us and in our in our world. Um, that that gets kind of far out. But for me, I I think that my deconstruction and journey out of conservative Christianity was a big big part of why I became affirming. And I think more mm-hmm. people have to go through it like that. Mm-hmm. It's not just that they have to get right on this one issue. No, it's, it's a, a whole different way change. of, yep, it's a completely systemic change. Yeah. You completely have to change the way you look at God and the scriptures as a whole, the yeah. way that you view faith. Yeah. Anyway. Um, well, that's basically all the questions I have for you. <laughs> Anything else all you right. want to add or say today? No, I think that's great. I really appreciate the time to share with you and and um, looking forward to being with you in a few weeks there in Glendale. And yeah. um, if people want to follow me in the meantime, they can do that at Amber N. Cantorna on any of the social media handles. And uh, looking forward to being with you soon. 
Yeah. Again, everybody, Saturday, April 6th, she's going to be holding a workshop at Central Avenue Church in Glendale. You can buy tickets on Eventbrite. The following day on Sunday at our 10 a.m. regular service, um, she and I will just have a dialogue uh, that I'll moderate and uh, just let her go. <laughs> let, let, let you do your thing. Uh, thanks so much for being here, Amber, and uh, we'll see you soon. Excellent. Thanks so much. Looking forward to it. Okay. Bye-bye.